Chapter Twenty Four of Ideala. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Amy Vandenberg. Ideala by Sarah Grand. Chapter Twenty Four. In a few days she returned to us, and we were amazed at the change in her. Her voice was clear again, her step elastic, her complexion had recovered some of its brilliancy. There was a light in her eyes that I had never seen there before, and about her lips a perpetual smile hovered. She was tranquil again, and self-possessed. But she was more than that, she was happy. One could see it in the very poise of her figure when she crossed the room. "'This is delightful, is it not?' Claudia whispered to me in the drawing-room on the evening of her return. "'Delightful,' I answered. But I was puzzled. Ideala's variableness was all on the surface— and I felt sure that this sudden change, which looked like ease after agony, meant something serious. She did not keep me long in suspense. The next morning she came to my studio door and looked in shyly. "'Come in,' I said. "'I have been expecting you.' And then I went on with my painting. I saw she had something to tell me, and thought, as she was evidently embarrassed, it would be easier for her to speak if I did not look at her. "'I hope you are going to stay with us some time now, Adiala,' I added, glancing up at her as she came and looked over my shoulder at the picture. Her face clouded. "'I—I'm afraid not,' she answered, hesitating, and nervously fidgeting with some paintbrushes that lay on a table beside her. "'I am afraid you will not want me when you know what I am going to do. I only came back to tell you.' My heart stood still. "'To tell me? Why, what are you going to do?' "'It is very hard to tell you,' she faltered. "'You and Claudia are my dearest friends, and I cannot bear to give you pain. "'But I must tell you at once. "'It is only right that you should know, especially as you will disapprove.' "'I turned to look at her, but she could not meet my eyes. "'Give us pain? Disapprove?' I exclaimed. "'What on earth do you mean, Ideala? What are you going to do?' "'An immoral thing,' she answered. "'Good heavens!' I exclaimed, throwing down my palette and rising to confront her. "'I don't believe it.' I mean, she stammered, the blood rushing into her face and then leaving her white as she spoke, something which you will consider so. I cannot believe it, I reiterated. But it is true, he says so. He? Who, in God's name? Lorimer. And who on earth is Lorimer? That is what I came to tell you, she answered faintly. I gathered up my palette and brushes and sat down to my easel again. Tell me, then. I said, as calmly as I could. I pretended to paint, and after a little while, still standing behind me so that I could not see her face, she began in a low voice, and told me, with her habitual accuracy, all that had passed between them. "'And what did you think when you found he was not there?' I asked, for at that point she had stopped. "'At first I thought he did not want to see me, and had gone away on purpose,' she answered. "'Then I was ill,' But after that, when I began to get better, I was afraid I had been unjust to him. There might have been some mistake, and I was half inclined to go and see, but I was frightened. And every day the longing grew, and I used to sit and look at my watch and think, I could be there in an hour, or I might be with him in forty minutes. But I never went, and after a while I could not bear it any longer, and so I came to you. But the thought of him came with me, and the desire to know the truth grew and grew, until at last I could bear that no longer either, and then I wrote, and day after day I waited, and no answer came. 
and then I was sure he had done it on purpose, but yet I could not bear to think it of him, and I began not to know what people said when they spoke to me, and I think I should have killed myself. But I came of an old race, you know, and none of us ever did a cowardly thing, and I would rather suffer forever than be the first noblesse oblige. I don't deserve much credit for that, though, for I knew I should die if I did not see him again, die of grief and shame and humiliation because of what I had written, for as the days passed and no answer came, I was afraid I had said too much, and he had misunderstood me and would despise me. If I had only been sure that he did not want to see me again, of course I should never have written, but so many people have lost their only chance of happiness because they had not the courage to find out the truth in some such doubtful manner, and I did believe in him, so I could not think he would do a low thing. I was in a difficult position, and I did what I thought was right, but when no answer came to my letter, I began to doubt, and then in a moment of rage, feeling myself insulted, I wrote again. Yet I don't know what made me write. It was impulsive, the sort of thing that makes one scream when one is hurt. It does no good, but the cry is out before you can think of that. All I said was, I understand your silence, you are cruel and unjust, but I can keep my word, and if I live for nothing else, I promise that I will make you respect me yet. I never expected him to answer that second note, but he did, at once, and he offered to come here and explain. He was dreadfully distressed, but I preferred to go to him. And you went? Yes, and I was frightened, and he was very kind. By degrees she told me much of what had passed at that interview. She seemed to have had no thought of anything but her desire to see him, and have her mind set at rest, until she found herself face to face with him, and then she was assailed by all kinds of doubts and fears. But he had put her at her ease in five minutes, and in five minutes more she had forgotten everything in the rapid change of ideas, the delightful intellectual contest and communion which had made his companionship everything to her. She did just remember to ask him why he had not answered her first letter. He searched about amongst a pile of newly-arrived documents on his writing-table. "'There it is,' he said, showing her the letter covered with stamps and postmarks. It only arrived this morning, just in time, though, to speak for itself. I was abroad when you wrote, and it was sent after me, and has followed me from place to place, as you see, so that I got your second letter first. You might have known there was some mistake. Pardon me, Idiala answered. I ought to have known. And then she had looked up at him and smiled, and never another doubt had occurred to her. But Idiala, I said to her, used the word immoral just now. You were talking at random, surely. You are nervous. For heaven's sake, collect yourself and tell me what all this means. No, I am not nervous, she answered. See? My hand is quite steady. It is you who are trembling. I am calm now and relieved, because I have told you. But, oh, I am so sorry to give you pain. I do not yet understand, I answered hoarsely. He wants me to give up everything and go to him, she said but he would not accept my consent until he had explained and made me understand exactly what I was doing. The world will consider it an immoral thing, he said, and so it would be if the arrangement were not to be permanent. But any contract which men and women hold to be binding on themselves should be sufficient now, and will be sufficient again, as it used to be in the old days, provided we can show good cause why any previous contract should be broken. You must believe that. You must be thoroughly satisfied now. For if your conscience were to trouble you afterwards, your troublesome conscience, which keeps you busy regretting nearly everything you do, but never warns you in time to stop you, if you were to have any scruples, 
then there would be no peace for either of us, and you had better give me up at once. And what did you say, Idiala? I said, perhaps I had. I was beginning to be frightened again. And how did it end? He made me go home and consider. Yes, and what then? I demanded impatiently. And next day he came to me to know my decision, and... And I was satisfied. I cannot live without him. I groaned aloud. What was I to say? What could I do? Any arrangement of this sort is carefully concealed, as a rule, by the people concerned, and denied if discovered. But here were a lady and gentleman prepared not only to take the step, but to justify it, under somewhat peculiar circumstances, certainly, and carefully making their friends acquainted with their intention beforehand, as if it were an ordinary engagement. I knew Idiala and could understand her being over-persuaded. Something of the kind was what I had always feared for her. But Lorimer, what sort of man was he? I own that I was strongly prejudiced against him from the moment she pronounced his name, and all she had told me of him subsequently only confirmed the prejudice. Why was he not there that day to receive you? I asked at last. I don't know, she said. I quite forgot about that, and I suppose he forgot too, she added, since he never told me. Oh, Idiala, I exclaimed. How like you that is! It is most important that you should know whether he intended to slight you on that occasion or not. It is the key to his whole action in this matter. But supposing he did mean to be rude, I should have to forgive him, you know, because I have been rude to him, often. He does not approve of my conduct always, by any means, she placidly assured me. And does he, of all people in the world, presume to sit in judgment on you? I answered indignantly. I always thought you the most extraordinary person in the world, Idiella, until I heard of this gentleman. Hush, she protested, as if I had blasphemed. You must not speak of him like that. He is a gentleman, as true and loyal as you are yourself, and he is everything to me. But these assurances were only what I had expected from Idiella, and in no way altered my opinions of Mr. Lorimer. I knew Idiella's peculiar conscience well. She might do what the world would consider wrong on occasion, but she would never do so until she had persuaded herself that wrong was right, for her at all events. "'He may be everything to you, but he has lowered you, Idiala,' I resumed, thinking it best not to spare her. "'I was degraded when I met him. Circumstances cannot degrade us until they make us act unworthily,' I rejoined. "'Oh, no, he has not lowered me,' she persisted. "'Quite the contrary.' I have only begun to know the difference between right and wrong since I met him, and to understand how absolutely necessary for our happiness is right doing, even the veriest trifle. And there is one thing that I must always be grateful to him for. I can pray now. But I bellied myself to him nevertheless. He asked me if I ever prayed, and I was shy. I could not tell him, because I only prayed for him. It was easier to say that sometimes I reviled. Ah, why can we not be true to ourselves? But I can't always pray, she went on sorrowfully. Only sometimes, generally when I am in church. The thought of him comes over me then, and a great longing to have him beside me, kneeling, with his heart made tender, and his soul purified and uplifted to God as mine is, possesses me. A longing so great that it fills my whole being and finds a voice. My God, my God, give him to me. Angels of God in heaven, give him to me, give him to me, I answered bitterly. Yes, I remember, she rejoined. I said it in my arrogant ignorance. I did not understand, and this is different. 
It is always different in our own case, I answered. Do you remember that passage Ralph Waldo Emerson quotes from Lord Bacon? Moral qualities rule the world, but at short distances the senses are despotic. It seems to me that when you call upon God in that spirit, you are worshipping him with your senses only. Then I believe it is possible to make the senses the means of saving the soul at critical times, she answered. And at all events I know this, that I more earnestly desire to be a good woman now than I ever did before. It would be a dangerous doctrine, I began. Only in cases where the previous moral development had not been of a high order, she interrupted. I felt it was useless to pursue that part of the subject, so I waited a little, and then I said, Am I to understand, then, that you are going to give up your position in society and all your friends for the sake of this one man who probably does not care for you, who certainly does not respect you, and for whom you know nothing? Verily, he has gained an easy victory. But, of course, you know now what his object has been from the first. I know what you mean, she answered indignantly, but you are quite wrong. He does care for me. And if I give up my position in society for his sake, he is worth it, and I am content. And it is my own doing, too. I know that there cannot be one law for me and another for all the other women in the world, and if I break through a social convention, I am prepared to abide by the consequences. Do you want to make me believe that his sympathy was pretended, that he deliberately planned, something I have no words to express, and would have carried out his plan absolutely in cold blood without a spark of affection for me? It would be hard to believe it of any man. It is impossible to believe it of him. He is a man of strong passions, if you will, but of noble purpose. And if I make a sacrifice for him, he will be making one for me also. He may have been betrayed at times by grief or other mental pain, which weakened his moral nature for the moment and left him at the mercy of bad impulses. But I can believe such impulses were isolated, and any action they led him into was bitterly repented of, and no one will ever make me alter my conviction that I wronged him when I doubted him, even for a moment. This is all very well, Idiala, I said, trying not to irritate her by direct opposition, if you appeared to him as you appeared to me. Do you think you did? Was there anything in your conduct that might have given him a low estimate of your character to begin with? Anything that might have led him to doubt your honesty and think, when you made your confession, that you were trying to get up a little play in which you intended him to take a leading part? That you merely wished to ease your mind from some inevitable sense of shame and wrongdoing by finding an excuse for yourself to begin with? An excuse by which you would excite his interest and sympathy and save yourself from his contempt? Oh, she exclaimed, could he, could anyone think such a thing possible? Such things are being done every day, Idiala, and a man of the world would naturally be on his guard against deception. If he thought he was being deceived, do you think it likely he would feel bound to be scrupulous? But he did believe in me, she declared passionately. He pretended to. It was part of the play. You see, he only kept it up until he thoroughly understood you, and then his real feelings appeared, and he was rude to you. For I call his absence on that occasion distinctly rude, and intentionally so, too, since he sent no apology. He was only rude to me to save me from myself, then, as Lancelot was rude to Elaine, she answered. Or is it not just possible that he was disappointed when he found you better than he had supposed? That he felt he had wasted his time for nothing and was irritated, she interrupted me. I forgive you, she said. But you do not know him, 
but i shall never convince you you are prejudiced you do not think ill of me why do you think ill of him i made no answer and she was silent for a little then she began again recurring to the point at issue if he did slight me on that occasion she said and i maintain that he did not but if he did it was accidentally done the evidence is against him i answered dryly many innocent persons have suffered because it was she said with confidence you are infatuated i answered roughly and then my heart sent up an exceeding great and bitter cry idiola idiola how did it ever come to this she was silent but her eyes were bright once more her figure was erect there was new life in her i could see that and never a doubt she was satisfied she was happy must i give you up she said at last tentatively no you must give him up i answered ah that is impossible she cried we were made for each other we cannot live apart idiola i exclaimed exasperated he never believed in you he thought you were as so many women of our set are and he showed it if only you could have understood when you saw him at that hospital on that last occasion you felt that there was some change as you say yourself and that was it you talked to him of truth then and it irritated him as the devil quoting scripture might be supposed to irritate and when you went back again he showed what he thought of you by his unexplained absence he thought you were not worth consideration and he gave you none it would have been paying himself a very poor compliment if he had thought that only a corrupted woman would care for him she answered confidently but i tell you i am sure there is some satisfactory explanation of that business i only wish i had remembered to ask for it that i might satisfy you now and at any rate she added whatever he may have thought he knows better by this time i could say no more baffled and sick at heart i left her wondering if some happy inspiration would come before it was too late and help me to save her yet end of chapter twenty four